in a way it imprisons uh, human capability in a kind of a jailhouse of rule and procedure, a lot of which doesn't add much. So then how would you, what would be the first thing you would attack to resolve this? Well, as I, as I said in, in my talk, I think, well, first of all, we have to count the cost. And I think, you know, most organizations really haven't tried to measure the cost of the insularity, the politicking, the friction in decision-making, the inertia that results from that. And so, you know, without, without having a benchmark there and any cost data around that, you have no idea what it's, what, it's, what it's actually costing the organization. Analogy I would use is, if you go back uh, 10 or 15 years, very few companies uh, worried about the environmental costs of, of, of business. And then over time, that became a big issue. Most companies now uh, report on that. They will have an environmental report. I think the same thing needs to happen here. If I'm an investor and I understand that the thing that is, is most costly to an organization is this top-heavy, rule-driven culture, which means they are going to miss new opportunities, they are going to misallocate resources, they are going to misuse their talent, that is something I want solved. And it's interesting that, you know, CEOs, as I mentioned, CEOs recognize the cost of bureaucracy vaguely, but I think very few have actually calculated it out and said, okay, this we have to solve. So, you know, again, we, we pay attention to the things that, 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 that we can measure. So I would say that's number one. I think number two, um, you have to believe that there are alternatives. You know, it's, it's one, one of the little anecdotes I like to tell us when the Spanish and Portuguese explorers came to the New World. At that time, uh, the Native Americans had not yet invented the wheel. So you think about what it must have been like the first time you saw a wheel. And you're like, holy crap. Like, why didn't, <laughs> right. we, why didn't we think of that? Like, wow, that's all I did. And I think that's, you know, the, the idea that you can run a billion dollar business with virtually no management layers at all, that kind of blows people's minds. Even a simple example I used today from GE Aviation, where you have 400 employees in a plant and one plant supervisor. If any of the people at this conference today went back to their organization and they said, hey, Gary told us that we should be aiming for a one to 400 span of control, they just like think, like, we're, we're not gonna pay you for you to go there again. Like, that was like a waste of bloody money. And so I think it's hard to imagine what you've never seen. So I think that's kind of a uh, uh, second thing I would say. You have to get out on the fringe, see these new companies, see how, they're, how they get control and discipline and alignment without a superstructure of supervisors. Uh, that I would say is uh, uh, kind of number two. I think uh, number three, you have to be able to find a migration path between the present and the future. And I think a lot of these post not all of them, but a lot of the post-bureaucratic organizations were born that way. So the ones that you know we've talked about through the years, companies like Gore, for example, would be one, uh, or the software company Valve. Uh, you know, they started life that way, built on a different set of principles, and so they never had to uninstall bureaucracy. They never had this, you know, uh, mesh of, of rules and procedure and so on that they had to pull out. So if you're a more traditional company, you know. The, the, the trans transition path is much more complicated for you. Because the fact is that even though it has a lot of downsides, bureaucracy works after a fashion, right? Uh, and it is the way we get control and coordination and consistency in large organizations. So finding a way, and this, this is why I emphasized that, that, that making this journey is not, let's tear up all the old track, let's blow it up and replace it with something. A few people have tried that, and it almost always leads to operational chaos because those processes are serving some purpose, however poorly. 
So that's why I think there, you need to think about it as a migration path. And the way I try to sometimes to visualize it is if you think of each of those principles that I just briefly put up today, but the principles of openness and meritocracy and experimentation, all the, the, the next generation management principles, I think of an organization as every one of those principles as, as a migration path from present to future. So take something like openness. Um, when we when we do this work in organizations, we'll ask employees, we crowdsource this, and we say, if we were really serious about openness, what would we change? So somebody will say, inevitably, we would publish all of our salary information. Why should that be secret? We should know how much people earn. Well, that may not be the place you want to start, right? That's a very politically yes. you know, dangerous thing to do. Somebody else will say, well, why isn't our product development process more open? Why aren't we involving customers much earlier than that? Why aren't we doing product development on you know, an external platform on the web where we can invite all these users together? Somebody else will say around openness, well, why isn't our strategy conversation open to employees internally? Why aren't we you know, hashing that out? What are our priorities? Where do we go next? What are the opportunities? Why isn't that open to everybody rather than being you know, a few senior leaders? So you take any one of those, those principles and you ask people, well, what would it mean if we actually took this seriously? And the answers you get back, you can start to array them kind of by degree of difficulty, right? How expensive is this? What kind of resistance might it provoke? You know, and, and so you think about, you know, step by step by step over the next few years, let's be, in, you know, every step, let's be a little more open, let's be a little, you know, have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more empowerment. But it's, it's a process, as I said, of having revolutionary goals and evolutionary steps. And, you know, what, the, the way I, I challenged, sorry, the, the, the way I challenged, the way I challenge uh, uh, CEOs on this, to give you an analogy, and not all of you are old enough to remember this, but uh, I can remember when there was like three or four channels of terrestrial television. That was it. When I first moved to the UK, that was it, right? Uh, maybe four channels. You think of how different streaming is now with Amazon Prime, Netflix, YouTube, how different that is in, in your choice, in the ability for somebody to create video, to build an audience, so just like almost night and day difference. So what I challenge leaders to think about is, we can start now, today, to imagine radical changes in business models, because we've seen it, and it's, and it's coming in financial services, and it's already happened in, 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 in media, it's already happened in retailing. The question is, can you imagine a similarly radical change in how we run large organizations, in the technology of, 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 of human you know, uh, co-action? And most can't, you know, it's just like, Okay, no, I have no, and, and so, so you have to at least start to be able to question those hypotheses and imagine something that is radically different. And so there's, there's a certain discipline in looking at the assumptions we have about how you run an organization. We just assume that power trickles down. We assume that you need managers to manage. Uh, we assume that um, uh, uh, control is imposed from above. And so these, you know, none of these things are like eternal truths. These are not principles of physics. They're just technologies we created to get things done. So it's that combination of counting the cost, of looking for the positive deviance, organizations who are doing it differently, of, 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 of challenging your own embedded assumptions and say, does it have to, to be that way? And then of, you know, having a conversation with the organization, saying, if we're serious, what do we change? And then find ways of experimenting that with low cost. You know, if you think about the, the, the very beginning of management research, it started with people like Elton Mayo and Roethlisberger 
in companies doing little experiments. You might remember the Hawthorne experiments if you ever mm -hmm. took a sociology yeah. course and so on, right? We'll go in, we'll turn up the lights, we turn down the lights and see what happens. I think what's, what's kind of sad is while many organizations will experiment with their website or with a service offering, we haven't taken that same idea of how do you experiment with our management process. And yet the only way to, to evolve something that's very complex uh, and it's truly kind of s systemic is through that sort of experimentation. You can't just rip it up and s have some grand design that you start top down. So for me, those are, you know, those are, are the way-ins. Being honest about the cost, getting comfortable that there is an alternative, and then saying, right, we don't have to do this in one jump, but we're going to start, you know, one by one by one. So for example, we did something in one of the largest insurance companies in the world where we just took a few hundred people, we posed these questions online, you know, what uh, uh, talked about these new principles, therefore what changes, and you just get an outpouring of ideas and experiments and off you go. Yeah. So. A lot of the people that are here are coming at this from sort of the HR tech standpoint, mm -hmm. and a lot of the conversations around automation and AI and things, I think you could read either as being opposed to some of the things that you're talking yeah. about, or as being tools that can help facilitate that. How do you see that, and what can the people that are here with this conference do to try and move things in the direction you're talking about? That's a very, very thoughtful question. I mean, there are definitely some people, and I would have said that maybe five or six years ago I was in that camp. You know, in fact, let me back up even a step further. Twenty years ago, just as the web was starting to be a thing, I started thinking about how do we use these technologies to dramatically improve innovation and adaptability in large organizations. And I wrote about this at quite some length in my book, The Future of Management. And so I asked questions like, you know, why can't, why can't we crowdsource capital decisions? So if, if markets are smarter than hierarchies, which they are, why do we allow a few people in large organizations to decide what to invest in? Because they'll miss the future every single time. I mean, if you think about it, a little sidetrack, Microsoft was late to every single, every, every single major change in tech industry in 20 years. They're late into AI right now, nice. they were late into cloud, they were late into search, everything. First to market and gaming. Yeah, and gaming, well, they weren't first, but they had enough horsepower that they finally won there. So, and they've done that before, they've come from behind. But you say, like, why have you guys always been late? And the answer is, you had two people at top, Bill Gates and, and Steve Ballmer, who had a, a veto authority on every new idea, and if it didn't fit with their mental model, the thing got killed. So I think, um, you know, I think technology can dramatically change the way our organizations are run. It can change how we find people, it can change how we hire them, how we make uh, capital decisions, strategic decisions. Thus far, it's mostly been used, as I see it, technology is mostly used in two ways. One, it's used as another tool for white collar productivity. So basically all the group wear, the project wear in companies, is basically the teams what Microsoft Office was to individuals 30 years ago. It's just one more, for sharing documents, sharing schedules, getting stuff done. Okay, fine. But let's not like pretend it's revolutionary. The other way it's being used is to aggregate information and exert more control. So managers today have an enormous amount of real-time microscopic information about you know, performance, and the temptation is, let me use that to manage even, you know, what, what some people have called digital tailorism, uh, some others have called time cards on steroids. But, you know, if, you know, the job of a manager is to control. In fact, if, if you look at any thesaurus around the world and you look at the word manage as a verb, the first synonym to the word manage as a verb is the word control. 
So if you take people who believe they're being paid to control and who, are, who live in fear of ever having a surprise, and you tell them, here's a new tool that's going to give you even more information, give you even more power to second guess, what are they going to do with it? So I, I think long term, my bet right now, at least in, sorry, in the short term I should say, my bet is that technology will be used more to disempower than to empower. And let me, let me give a, sim a simple example. And, and again, I'll take a step back first. So think about how technology has empowered us as consumers. Where today, in fact, I, I wrote the first cover story for Fortune magazine on the web. That was 1998. And we predicted the long tail and micro markets. And we predicted peer-to-peer -peer commerce. All these things you could see coming. And it's just been, it's enormously empowered us with, with, with choice and information and so on. And then you go, okay, so that's what technology has done in our life as consumers. What has technology done in our life as employees? Where's the similar empowerment? I was, I was speaking at a conference a couple of years back called the consumerization of IT, which is kind of a big bullshit thing. But basically what it means is giving people the ability to bring their own devices to work, right? They call it BYOD. You can bring your tablet, your smartphone. So I get why that's like a technical challenge of provisioning those, supporting those, security, I understand that. But the thing that, I, that struck me was, like, is this really, when we're talking about knowledge workers, is this the high watermark now, or is this, is this the, like the bleeding edge and empowerment is like, okay, Michelangelo, you get to choose your chisel, right? Like, is that where we're at? And, you know, my question is, what, why don't we have design your own job? Why don't we have pick your own colleagues? Right? Why don't we have choose your own boss? Why don't we have approve your own expenses? And all those sound completely insane until you see organizations doing them. You know, I, I was reading this thing, a piece in the Financial Times, where some journalists just had this throwaway comment that says, of course we don't get to pick our colleagues. I thought, really? That's not true in a business school, right? The faculty interviews a, a colleague, yeah. and you pretty much have to agree, close to consensus, and, and at Whole Foods, let's see what happens now that, that Amazon has the hooks into them. But historically at Whole Foods, if, if you wanted to work there, you would work for a couple of weeks with one of their in-store teams, and it took a 70% vote to the team to hire you. Well, that makes like perfect sense. Why wouldn't you do that? And so, and so you know, so we, we, are, we are so used to thinking about uh, people as needing parents at work and needing this kind of, that we can hardly imagine a world in which that's not true. So in the short run, I think technology is going to be far more disempowering at work than it is empowering. And I hope that's not true. You know, my goal will be to make that not true over the longer term, but for now, uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm seeing. And, you know, you, you know, now you can parse jobs into ever smaller, you know, slivers and you can, you know, uh, 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 you know, you can bid those out to the, to the cheapest labor anywhere in the world. Uh, now we're talking about taking social media tools and turning work into this perpetual game of trying to get likes from your peers, like, God help us. So, you know, any, any technology, if you don't start with the right principles, then you're not going to end up in a good place. What companies could you point to that are using these kinds of models to be successful? Silence. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned this Chinese company, Hire. I'll give you one example, one, one thing they're doing which is pretty cool. They built a, 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 a development platform called Hope, Hire Open Platform Ecosystem. And now every, I think, I, I shouldn't say categorically, but nearly every new product in that company starts out as an online project with customers. 
So for example, when they developed a new air conditioner, they simply go out to, you know, they use social media, they use their platform, they go out and say, what do you want in an air conditioner? And the first time they did that, they got 700,000 comments. And they had hundreds of thousands of fans following the project. And so they now do all of their product development as, as, as it were in the wild, out there. Everybody can see it, including competitors. Anybody can log into this site. This is how they find their technical partners. You know, they'll say, we have this technical challenge, you can solve this. You know, Dow Chemical comes and says, yeah, we can build a membrane for that. But, but their view is that the advantages of having all of that feedback early on, early in the process, outweighs the loss of, of um, you know, secrecy that is implied in that kind of approach. So, and they're, they're kind of doing the same thing internally that, as I said, these little micro-enterprises, all of their relationships internally are now market-based contracts. So, as I said this morning, if, if you need HR help, you, you have no obligation to buy HR internally. There are internal HR, they call them nodes, there are these little nodes that will provide you hiring help and comp but you can, you can go to anybody. And, and, and their philosophy is no function should have a monopoly. Because frankly, HR has gotten lazy, right? If you look in most organizations, H, in fact, we have the data on this, HR is the fastest growing function of all corporate functions, more than planning, more than IT, more than anything, and it's had the consistently lowest rates of, of, of approval and value add. So they've said, why should internal service providers have monopolies, right? Like, so they don't. Um, so all of these internal things are, are based on, on, on uh, contracts. So there's some companies that I think are, are doing interesting things. But in terms of leveraging collaborative technology for deep change, not so many. We're, we're working right now, I can't tell you the company unfortunately, but we're working with a company you guys would all know. It's one of the most respected companies in the world. But we have 65,000 people on our platform working together to solve the toughest challenges the organization is facing. And I think, you know, in the past, a lot of companies like put up little idea wikis, idea markets, nothing happened because first they didn't train people on how do you think like a game changer. So you just get kind of drivel if you don't teach people. You know, I, I use the analogy, if, if you want a company filled with golfers, you better teach them how to hold a club. If you want a company filled with innovators, you better teach them what it means to innovate. So we teach people, we put the platform out there, we bid out really tough problems. You have thousands of people working on it. And for the first time, you have you know, retail employees and others who never would have thought they could, they could impact you know, a huge global company, and now you can. That the scope of your influence is determined only by the quality of your ideas, the ability to attract sponsors. It has nothing to do with where you sit in the organization or anything else. And so, you know, I think we're, we'll slowly move to that kind of radical meritocracy because we have to. You, know, you can't afford to have wisdom or imagination somehow bottled up and unavailable to you merely because that person, you know, doesn't sit in an executive position or, um, you know, doesn't have a particular title. What do you think of the Madragon Cooperative? It's pretty interesting. I've been there. I've talked to them. I don't know if it will scale, but but I think it's interesting. As you know, it's a it's kind of a co-op of co-ops, all employee-owned. These small businesses, and and like like higher, they have a divisional level there, but it's basically the businesses elect the divisional kind of vice presidents. And their role is not to supervise those businesses. Their role is to manage the linkages, the interdependencies across them, and find opportunities where they should be sharing investment or you know, working together with the supplier. And that's the same way it happens at Hire. They, they, they have three levels. They have the little microenterprises. They have the CEO's office. In between, they have these things called platform heads. But they have no 
top-down power. They're just merely there as connectors and facilitators to connect all these businesses together. And you know what what happens now? And I'll give you another. I actually said who's doing it. I'll give you one other company that's doing it quite well. Is a Mexican cement company, Cemex. So they have uh, they now have several thousand self-organized online communities that come together around the big challenges in the organization, around environment, around branding, whatever it may be. And you know they solve problems collaboratively, but but. So, so, for example, a group of middle-level managers at Semex built the company's first global brand without ever having a chief marketing officer. Right? In most companies, the, the response to any new problem is, let's create a new CXO. So you have chief digital officer, chief transformation officer, chief learning officer, chief experience officer, chief whatever. Like, how stupid is that? You just have to create a platform where people who, who have similar interests can come together and solve those problems. But that's not the way our mind thinks. Our mind thinks is, no, no, somebody has to be in charge. We need to build another mini bureaucracy. That's how you solve this. And um, so I, you know, why, why I'm very optimistic about this is I think there's some things that are pushing us here, irrespective of whether companies want to go. The first is the world is just changing too fast for hierarchical organizations to succeed. A hierarchy cannot build a network, cannot beat a network. And so when you live in this highly networked world, Hierarchies are going to lose, so they just have to figure out how do you exploit the power of, of the network inside their own organizations. And that, that's what Zhang Runin says. He describes hire the entire company. He says, we're not a company, we're just a node in a much bigger network. And our borders are completely porous. There's no we or us inside, outside. So first we're going to have to, just because we can't, we can't change fast enough for the old hierarchical top-down model. Second reason I think it's going to happen is for the first time in human history, we have the tools to do it. So if you go back even... 30, 40 years, information was expensive to move. The best way to move it was you have 10 people, give that information to a boss, then you consolidate at that level, then they report up, and they report up. So hierarchy, you know, you go back to, you know, the Roman army and so on. Hierarchy was simply an information processing tool, right? And the dilemma is that in the end, the only person who had the whole picture was at the top, right? And then you try to send an order back down. It was just like, the, you know, the, 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 the lags between sense and respond you know, we're, 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 you know, weeks, months, years. So first we're gonna do it because we have to. Second, because we now have new tools. We can move information instantly. We can connect people together. Everybody can have a holistic, you know, view of the organization. And the third reason it's gonna happen is because, you know, young people coming to work are not going to put up with the old models. You know, if, if you grew up and your life has been on the web where power trickles up, if you have, if you have uh, uh, you know, uh, any influence on the web is because people chose to follow you. You can't make somebody follow you. Uh, you know, if, if you post something on YouTube, nobody asks, did you go to film school? It's just like, put the idea out there, see if it, like, anybody, you know, clicks on it. And, and so if you've grown up in that environment and you believe that power comes from the lead, you believe that every idea should compete on an equal footing, you believe that contribution matters more than credentials, you just have no patience in organizations where those things are not true. So, you know, companies that are stuck in the old model are going to find it harder and harder to, to, to hire the best people because, you know, I, I don't want to work in an organization where I'm going to spend the next 10 years, you know, fighting my way up a hierarchy, competing for the little character promotion. And, um, yeah. One of the things that you said earlier about HR, one of the fastest growing areas of corporations today, do you think, because one of the criticisms that I've always heard and I've been in the space a long time too is that, the HR is there to protect the employer, not the individual, not the employee. Mm -hmm. So, 
is that maybe one reason why this is kind of the last vestige of holding on to hierarchy of, of having HR in, in that compliance role? Yeah. I think that's a very astute comment, and I would just uh, take it one step further or broader. Maybe, maybe two quick ideas. One is, if you think of a hierarchy of human capability, not of human needs, not a mass hierarchy, but a hierarchy of human capability at work, the way I think about that is, on the bottom I have obedience. Because you do need obedience, legal rules, I mean there is a, a role for obedience, I'm just following the rule book. A level up from that I have diligence, people who are committed, they'll work hard, they take responsibility for results, that's also important. A level up from diligence, I have competence. People are well-trained, have expertise, have the tools, and you know, I want to hire smart, competent people. The dilemma, if you stop there, is those human capabilities, obedience, diligence, and, and uh, 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 competence, today those are commodities. I can buy those almost anywhere in the world for almost nothing. So if that's all we get out of people, like, you know, you lose. So you have to keep going and say, well, I also need initiative. I need people who are not bound by their job description, who are not passive, they see a problem, opportunity, off they go, they tackle it. Beyond that, I need creativity. They're learning from other industries, they're bringing in new ideas, they challenge conventional thinking. And then finally, I need people who have passion, who, who see their work here as how they make a difference in the world. Because, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, at the heart of all of this is uh, people who bring all of themselves to work. And you only do this if you're passionate about what you're doing. So the dilemma is, and that's what the engagement data tells us, it tells us that people are obedient and they're pretty diligent and they're competent, but we are getting almost none of those higher levels. We're not getting the initiative, we're not getting the creative, whatever. And so then you say, why? And, and you know, in a way it's pretty simple. Those things at the top, uh, initiative, creativity, and passion, these are gifts which people choose to bring to work. You cannot, com I mean, you can try to command them, but they cannot be commanded. So a leader, any leader at any level now has to recognize, I am working in a gift economy. And the things that are most important to the success of my organization is not something I can put any KPI around. I can't tell somebody how to do it. But here you run into the, what you were describing, the old model. The old model is the institution hires people as resources to create products and profits. So if you think institution hires people to create, in that, in that uh, view, the human being is an instrument. Like how much passion are you going to get out of anything, a human being who thinks they're just merely an instrument in your grand plan, right? Almost zero. So, you know, the typical, still today, the typical manager leader will say, well, their, their mindset is, how do I get these people to serve the organization? And I would tell you, I think that is ass backwards. You know, the question you have to ask instead, if you want to get those higher order capabilities is, how do I create a work environment that's so inspiring, the chance to contribute, the chance to grow, so people will willingly bring those gifts to work every day? And that takes a very, very different kind of, of, of leader. So, you know, I talked about humanocracy, which is just my clumsy word, because, you know, if you go back, the, the word bureaucracy, it's, it, it's, it's an 18th century word. It started in France, hardly surprising. Um, but if you think, the, the, the word bureau meant office or, or position or title. So in a bureaucracy, the thing that's central is the position. You're a vice president or you're a whatever. And, and, you know, and so you organize everything around that. In humanocracy, you start with the human being and what they can do. So rather than going institution, individual products and services, I would rather say individuals join companies, they really don't join a company, they join a community, part of it, 
people they like work with every day. So individuals join a community to make a certain kind of impact in the world and also to you know earn their living. But in that model, the institution is the is the instrument, not the person. And of course, that's already the way young people think, right? You know, I'm just going to move. I'll build my resume. I'll do this. I go from whatever. So. But I think for most leaders, that's a fundamental reorientation and how they see uh, human beings and how they see their role. And I think HR is still, you know, catching up to that. And, um, you know, so if, if, if the real starting point for HR was how do we make you more effective in your job? How do we help you add more value, make a bigger impact, you know? But I think you're absolutely right. The question is whose interests do you serve? And you know, a lot of progressive CEOs like Richard Branson, who's been at these events, um, uh, the guys who run uh, Nucor uh, Steel and so on, they will all tell you employees come first, customers come second, shareholders come last. And that's not just like a philosophical point of view. You'll never have better customer relationships than you have relationships with your employees. Like, ask United, right? So that's just the reality. So you better start there because I can't take care of all these customers. I, I have to take care of my people and then I have to trust them to do that. And if you take care of your customers, ultimately shareholders benefit. But we just, again, we just like turn that around and, um, you know, and the results are what you see when you're dealing with your local cable company or, you know, any number of other businesses where, uh, you know, they have toxic relationship with their employees where, People don't have freedom to do the right thing for customers. So yeah, we've, we've got it backwards in many ways. Yeah. Part of the part of the kind of conceit of this conference, I guess, is that it's a bridge between Europe and the U.S. Um, do you see these issues being handled differently in, in European and uh, American companies? What do you think they can learn from each other? Well, you know, I've lived on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, my assistant was telling me the other day I've now crossed the Atlantic more than 600 times. So I'd like to think I understand something about both cultures, and there are differences in culture. Having said that, when you look at the data uh, about how employees feel about work, the degrees of freedom they have, there's not actually very much difference. Uh, the, if you look at, and you can go dig this up, but if you look at the European Working Conditions Survey and you compare it to a counterpart survey in the United States, it's very, very close on most majors. And I think that's because, you know, bureaucracy is just, it's a global thing. It is, it's, it's very little different between one country, one sector, public sector, private sector. Um, so it's very, very hard to make, you know, generalizations. I see some incredibly enlightened companies in Europe, like as I mentioned, Svenska Handelsbanken, based in Sweden, but now all over Northern Europe. Um, you know, I see others that are very traditionally managed, you know, like one of the sponsors for this event, SAP, right? It's a great company, I love them, but I was, I was talking, the guy who was, tell, I think a few months ago, was co-CEO, he's now uh, chairman of a big Danish company. But he said when he left SAP, they had 50,000 KPIs across the company. <laughs> And, and, he, and he said it was bullshit. He said we all knew it. But the conceit behind it was if we have enough measures, we can run this thing by remote control, right? <laughs> we just like, are looking at everything and knowing it. And he said we all know it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. But like, you know, it's our security blanket. So I don't know that there are big, big 
differences. I, you know, if there's one difference, I think U.S. companies probably have an even more transactional view of employees and a more, you know, you know, I have a, tell a personal story, I have a very clever, and I can say that as a dad, but I have a very clever daughter, she's a master's from Berkeley, and she was a Google fellow, and, and then did uh, brilliant work at Facebook, and then was, uh, had a job offer from Netflix. And she'll tell you, it's, in those companies, you find the most toxic work environments anywhere you can imagine. That it is just absolutely, uh, you know, competitive. There's very little real collaboration. That uh, the company treats people as completely expendable, just churns through them. Um, you know, you're expected to surrender all of your personal life to the company. And I see this, you know, because I work with some of these companies as well. So that I would, you know, that is certainly one difference. I just think the pressure on employees in the United States is just like greater than I think maybe anywhere else in the world. And, uh, and of course they work longer hours than anywhere else in the world now. And, uh, um, and they're expected to be connected 24-7. And they're expected to be always available wherever yeah. they are, you know, and um, yeah, so, you know, and what you're finding is the smartest kids out there, they're not working for Google, Facebook, whatever. They are the contractors working for those guys who are running their own little businesses and they connect when they want and disconnect. But they've, they've, they're smart enough to stay out of the maw of, of, of all of that. But, um, but you know, the, the, the thing I'm hoping at some point I'll end here is that we'll start to understand that all of this is a national competitiveness issue. That, you know, you look at the dismal productivity growth, and that's also common in, in, in Europe and North America, dismal productivity growth which has created a lot of economic frustration, which leads to growing wage, uh, uh, growing income inequality, wage stagnation, growing populism, growing divisiveness in society. Um, you know, I still, you know, all of our research says the best way of, of, of changing that is starting to equip people on the front lines to make real decisions, to, to add real value. I, you know, New Course Deal, I've gotten to know them quite well. Something like this is now happening at Michelin in Europe. But no, a frontline employee on New Car Steel, every employee knows the profitability of every order that goes out of any of their planes. And when they hit certain targets, there's a bonus in next week's paycheck. And they are, they are the most innovative steel company in the world with no central R&D. So you have blue-collar workers who are talking to metallurgists at General Motors and Toyota, trying to help them solve these problems. And if they can't find an answer, so-called blue-collar employees go hire a PhD metallurgist to help them solve it, right? I mean, the secret to creating good jobs, you know, good jobs is not about software or coding skills. It's not about some sectors. It's not about, you know, everybody with the universe. A good job is a job in which people have the ability to develop and grow those problem-solving skills and capabilities. And, and, and that creates more value for the company, creates more value for them. And, and so, you know, that's my, 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 my deeper passion is how do we, how do we change you know, the, the divisiveness and, and, and the caste system we have inside organizations by, uh, you know, recognizing the inherent gifts that, that everyone has and by increasing the creative content of every job. Uh, and um, so it'll take a while, <laughs> but hopefully something that uh, is worth working on. <laughs>